Hey everyone, uh, this is kind of a special episode for us. Uh, before we get going with John here, we want to acknowledge the fact that Endurance Innovation has been in your ears, hopefully, for a year now. Our very first episode aired on May 19th, 2019. And uh, when this airs on the 21st of May, 2020, we'll have just been over our one-year threshold. So the first thing we want to do is thank all of you for uh, tuning in all these months. Yeah, it's been an awesome time for both of us. Um, I've absolutely in, in just loved everything that we've learned. And it's uh, for us, I think it's been just as much of a learning experience as it has been for everyone else, hopefully. And we've gotten to talk to some amazing guests. We've learned a ton about businesses and about sports science and some of the, the physics and background for things that we had questioned before, but never had the time or had the ability to fully understand. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think the podcast is a wonderful medium for that because even if you're um, if you were doing written interviews with folks, you have uh, you have a question, they give you an answer. There's really not much of an opportunity for follow up, but uh, the way that uh, you doubtlessly appreciate the way the way that we conduct interviews is that we have a fairly free form uh, set of topics that we want to ask our our guests, and then we we pepper them with follow ups, and that's I think that's a, a really nice way of getting a little bit more information out of them. And we get those surprises every once in a while too, like Dia wanting to do his his own introduction to our podcast, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, thank you again for, for listening and uh, here's to another year and more of, uh, of Endurance Innovation. And uh, without further ado, here's uh, John's episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Endurance Innovation. And today we've got possibly one of the, the first people in the cycling industry that I had ever really interacted with, uh, John Thornham from Flow Cycling. And my history goes back to, I think shortly after you guys launched, I bought a per, uh, bought a set of your race wheels and I've been racing on them ever since. So I'm a huge fan and welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks for having us. Uh, that's, uh, that's really cool. It, I'm going to remember you from back in the day and definitely glad you're still racing on them. That means a lot. Yeah, my experience, I mean, we've never met, John, but uh, I was also a fairly early on follower of, uh, of Flow and I, I didn't have your, I didn't get your, your first gen wheels, but I think I got the first round of the second gen carbon, yep. uh, carbon brake surface guys. And they, they really, they really did me well too. So uh, I also, I'm a fan. Awesome. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. So that dovetails nicely into uh, kind of our um, probably our first question or our first point of conversation is uh, what's the uh, what's the story of flow and then I'll, I'll add a little bit of context to that question uh, when you guys uh, kicked it off what need were you trying to serve in the market what opportunity did you see uh, great question and I think that you know to start this company was founded by myself and uh, a twin brother that I have named Chris and um, we were both mechanical engineers who graduated as mechanical engineers and ever You're since i've been company then yeah i know right we got a maybe, yeah. too, maybe a few too many engineers <laughs> we'll figure it out we'll come up with a solution to the problem um, for sure 
Yeah. So, so basically, you know, ever since I can remember being a little kid, I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, always been athletic, always have done things sports oriented. I always kind of wanted to design products and I didn't know what that would look like. Uh, we graduated in 06. My brother, uh, we were both working at this mechanical engineering job and he was getting kind of bored of the gym. I just go to the gym and he's like, man, I, I feel like I want to do something competitive again. We uh, raced skiing growing up, both grew up in Canada. So we had a bit of a race background and he was reading a men's health magazine and saw an article on uh, triathlon. He's like, what's that? So he read about it. He's like, I think I could do that. So he went out and bought all the gear and did that whole thing. And uh, he was in the process of buying race wheels. And when he bought them, he brought them home and he showed them to me and he said, Hey, what do you think these cost? And I was like, I don't know, 500 bucks. And he said, no, keep guessing. And I said <laughs> up or down. And eventually I get to the point where he was, I don't know, $2,500 or whatever it was. And I said, man, you're absolutely nuts. And he said, do you think that we could do that more affordably? And I said, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely do. I, I mean, I can't really understand why there's that much cost in one of these wheels. And uh, he said, do you want to start a business? And I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. And then the next question I asked him was basically, you know, what are all the parts of the wheel called? I, didn't, I mean, I didn't even know. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I had bikes growing up. I rode bikes a lot, but it's not like I really looked at all the individual components. So, you know, to make a long story short, we, we started looking at it and, and we started to do some market research. And one of the things that we saw was that there were really two types of companies at the time. There were companies that were doing a lot of R&D. Um, you look at a company like Zip um, and at the time... Uh, a company like Head or, you know, Envy was kind of in their infancy at that point. And they, I think they started just a couple of years before us. And okay. so a lot of the R&D stuff that was being done was super expensive. I mean, they're selling through traditional retail. So they would go through, and in traditional retail, for people that don't know, it's you go from a manufacturer to a distributor to a bike shop and then to the end consumer. So there's markup every, every way along that chain. There were a couple other companies at the time Um one company, uh, a name of called William Cycling, which was doing some stuff and they were doing direct to consumer. But what was unique about them is that they weren't at the time, and I don't know if they ended this way or not, but they were buying what's called an open mold. And right. so an open mold product, basically you can go over to any factory that manufactures, most of them are in, in uh, a number of the Southeast Asian countries, China, Taiwan, that's not Southeast Asia, but um, or, uh, you know, even in Vietnam, you can get some stuff manufactured. And if you go into one of the factories, they kind of have like a showcase. And so you can look at um, a number of products and you say, hey, I want this one, this one, and this one, and put my logo on it. And you have a wheel company. So you can do that. And so that's what they were doing. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily inherently wrong with the product, but what, what you're missing at that point is you're missing all the R&D and all the engineering that goes into making something fast. So they were selling them much cheaper because they were selling them consumer direct. And so what I said was, well, what if we mix the best of both? We're both mechanical engineers. So can we design something, um, make it really fast? And can we sell it consumer direct? And that was that was the niche in the market. That's what we saw. And so we did. We were the first company to, and I still think we're actually the only company that still does that. So um, it opened up this window for us. And we uh, developed a product that was super fast, but also affordable because we because we sold the consumer direct. I remember actually with the consumer direct model, like it was it was new, relatively new at the time. And I remember sitting there on my lunch hour, 
waiting for your your sale to start because I knew they sold out in a matter <laughs> of minutes. And I was refreshing yep. the page and I was like, oh, I got to get these, got to get these. And uh, I was super excited when I did, but that was, uh, for me, that was kind of the first big triathlon purchase I'd ever made other than the bike itself. Um, so it was a big step up for me. And I was, I was so impressed just following your story. I was so impressed by the science that went into it, but also the dedication to provide something that was good value for everyone. And uh, yeah, I thought it was just, for me, it was the perfect mix of those two aspects. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, it was back in the beginning of this too. It was, it was kind of one of those things where like my brother and I had tried to start a business before this one and it didn't work out the best. And one of the things we realized was like, well, we don't have no idea on a market. Like I, I'm an engineer. I've, I've never looked at marketing. I just figured we would make something cool. And it's like feel the dreams, you build it and they show up. Well, that's not necessarily <laughs> true when it comes to business. Right. So, um, we did a ton of research on just marketing. And one of the things that we did is we had built a list. And at the time, I, I guess I didn't really understand the, the size of the list that we had. I think we had like, it's close to 3000 people on a list. And I figured, you know, if we sold, you know, a hundred wheels in our first year, we'd be fine. And what we did is when we launched, we, we this thing called a pre-order because we didn't have enough money to buy all the product, but uh, it was really before the time of anything like Kickstarter existed. And I, if I would have started Kickstarter instead of this business, it probably would have been a much different situation, but we had basically created this launch. And uh, when we did it, we actually we crashed a web server the minute we went live. And so we then be, had to become somewhat of a, a tech startup because we kept, it was like the third pre-order, I think, that we had finally had enough of crashing web servers that we ended up working with a group called Rackspace and they led us into their uh, their startup program and they really created this back end for us that would not crash. I mean, this is really before the days of Shopify and all these basically hosted services that would allow you to not crash and stay up. And so, yeah, it was it was a really fun process and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just really enjoyed it. It was a great time. Yeah, I remember doing the exact same thing for the uh, the, the first wheels that I bought through you guys. It was like, okay, you got to create an account. Got to create an account. Did the created the account, and then I was like, I was the same as Andrew. I was uh, clicking refresh until what I needed was available, and then uh, you know, hurry scurry to place my order too. And it's funny because a lot of people thought that we like specifically like tried to make that happen, but we didn't. We were just <laughs> it like felt oh, a little like, bit like that for sure. I know it. And that's what we get. It's like, we were really providing all this information. It was like, okay, well, this is what you need to do because like, we don't want people to not get stuff and we just want to be honest. And we just want to, we didn't think it was going to work that well. Right. So then we had to adapt to basically try and make it work. And it was crazy. It was fun, but it was, it was crazy. I remember the first order we had, we, because we crashed, I worked 20 hours a day straight for four days in a row because we were just, we, the way that it worked, we, we actually processed through this group and we had like almost a hundred. And so if, if we had, you know, 300 orders, we had 450 orders because they were duplicated. So we were, I had to go through and like manually refund all these people and figure out what the duplicates were. And that was back before we had any tech that really allowed us to understand orders. It was, it was so popsicle sticks back in the day, but you know, thinking back to those memories, it's super fun. To, to remember all that stuff. So the fun story there is that I actually used your um, your blog and all the the lessons that you learned when I was starting up Stack, um, and that was kind of the initial market research I had done because you posted the number of orders that you had for each of your sales. Um, so yeah. it was for me, it was like it was so inspirational to see this kind of entrepreneurial spirit and the, all this information just put out there because so many companies are very closed about what kind of sales numbers they have. 
Um, but right yep. from the start, you guys are posting everything about your test data, your design process, um, everything that went into the the actual manufacturing, like all the trips that you take to um, your manufacturing facility. There were yep. no secrets. And it was such a different way of doing business. You know, what's interesting is... We- I was really at that time, like I said, when we did a bunch of research on, on marketing is there were some, that would have been back, you know, 2011, 2010, 2011. So at that time, you know, big cycling companies at the time are really spending still a lot of money on trade shows. They're spending a ton of money on, uh, advertisements in magazines and certain things like that. And we just didn't have the budget. Like I we bootstrapped this on our own. We didn't have the cash. We were, you know, newly grad, newly graduated and, buying molds and containers of wheels is not cheap. And so we said, okay, well, how do we, what can we do that's different? And at the time there was a a guy by the name of David Meerman Scott, who had wrote a book on marketing called the new rules of marketing and PR. And I always kind of had this sense like, okay, so if, if I, if I want to do this, like, I feel like I need to write stuff, but I didn't really know. And he, he just like packaged everything together for me. Uh, and we had just built this following based on being very open and transparent. And that's kind of who I am naturally anyway. Like, if somebody knocked on my door and said, "Hey, can you can you tell me about this?" I'd probably take the next four hours to explain it to them. I just I just love that sort of stuff. So, if I was going to buy a product, something of this nature, I would want to understand how it works, and I would want to you know have it be you know wide open and be and transparent. And so that's that's something that we kind of baked in in from the beginning. And uh, yeah, it's just it, it was a great way to market, and it it, it worked out really well. Well, clearly it did. And just speaking from my own experience, that's what drew me to uh, to your products. Just the fact of uh, I didn't I didn't do the market research like Andrew did because that's not what I was after. I was after a, a good uh, set of wheels, but I definitely followed the blog on the on the aerodynamic side, and I still refer to a bunch of your articles when when people ask me questions on. I remember your article on rolling resistance, which isn't even you know well, it's it's obviously related to wheels, but it has nothing to do with aerodynamics necessarily. Right. I still send that one to to folks, and then I remember when you guys did that study where. You you toured around with the the aero sensors to to figure out which degrees of yaw are pertinent, yep. and then you you tested your wheels to those degrees of yaw. That was groundbreaking because you would get you know, and Andrew and I pan this all the time on the show. We, you you'd get uh, you know wind tunnel data from a, another manufacturer, even some of the the premium guys, and there's no context to it. You don't understand what you know what speed this was tested at, or you don't understand what uh, what degree of yaw this was tested at, and who they were comparing what to. And it was just it was super. Uh, um, you know, super obtuse and, and not not at all straightforward. So I think that's where, and I'm sure you know all of this, but this is where I felt that you guys differentiated yourself. And that's what, you know, that's what made me interested. I'm actually happy to hear you say that because, you know, when we first started the company, the first generation of wheels that we we developed, uh, it's kind of a funny story. I, I had drafted a bunch of shapes and I was, we were trying to figure out like, you know, how do we do this? We just didn't have the money to go to a wind tunnel. Wind tunnels are super expensive. And I was like, okay, well, there's, CFD software and well, maybe we could figure that out. And we're trying to figure out like, well, how do we, you know, what's that look like? And I was working at the time as a, as a, as an engineer for this company. And I used to call on a bunch of other engineering firms and I just, one of the guys, he was roughly my age, great guy. And we got talking one day and I was saying, Hey, I was looking at this or whatever. And he's like, okay, cool. And he, he like messaged me after he said, Hey, if you ever need any uh, CFD work, it just happens that uh, the owners of this company bought this CFD package and they don't know how to use it. <laughs> they sent me to like a, a two-week training, so I'm really good at it. And it just sits here. It's a license of something called CD Adapco, which is like the premier you know, CFD package. And I was like, 
seriously? He's like, yeah. He goes, dude, I'll run anything for you. He goes, it doesn't matter. I, uh, they won't even know it's running in the background. I was like, okay. So I sent him over a bunch of shapes and it was just this little single core processor computer. And so those four, you know, those initial four shapes that we tested, they took like 28 days to test. And he sent me these files back and I was like, man, this is, it worked out really, really well. I ended up giving him a set of wheels for his uncle and when we, when we released, but we had, you know, we had developed this, this first product, but ever since I started, like from the very beginning, I'm like, this makes absolutely no sense. And I wish I had the budget to figure out, like to do it the way that I really want to do it. And the thing that I never understood was that you would look at back in the day, it was the yaw versus drag graph, which was like super common, right? So yep. they would they would show these sweeps and you know, they would show these low points in a graph. And typically you get a wheel that stalls at, you know, anywhere between 15 and 17 degrees a yaw or 70, you know, somewhere in that range. And they're like, we make the fastest wheel in the world. And here it's proven right here at this at this point. And I'm like, hold on, yep. that that just doesn't a doesn't make any sense. Do we even see that yaw angle when we ride on the road? Does it does it matter? And if we do, is it one percent of the time, two percent of the time? Because it didn't make any sense. And so I was always of the of the mindset that if we're gonna make something that's fast, we need to know what actually happens on the road. So fast forward a few years, we had we had a you know had some sales, we had some money coming in, we had some some R and D cash, and I'm like, well, I just want to measure this. I, I'm just gonna figure this out. And so I was trying to figure it out. And I actually built this computer, which is now today, there's like super advanced computers, which is our new generation of wheels, which is all based on rolling resistance is we use this really great computer from a group called Aerolab and it's super high tech. It's very small. And they jokingly call our old one, the blender. It's actually one of their presentations because they make fun of how big (laughs) this thing was. But you know, what it did was it allowed us to just collect real world, world data, like everywhere. We went to number of different Ironman courses. We rode in groups. We rode through like wooded areas. We rode through along the coast. We rode anything you can imagine. And and it gave us this really huge data set. It was like 110,000 data points of insight as to what we actually see. And then we're like, okay, well now what we'll do is we'll put that in a CFD package and we'll we'll basically create an optimization algorithm and we'll solve for something that actually matters. And we developed this thing called something called at the time, it was called the net drag reduction value. So we took an average and said, who cares what the low point is? It's it, What matters is what is your average? And when we did that, we, we developed wheels that were just significantly faster because they were designed for the right characteristics. Yeah, that's awesome. That's what, I mean, yeah, like I said, that's what, uh, that was the light bulb moment for me that you guys were doing something that other people weren't and that it was important. Yeah, it was fun. And the fun story that I have there is you'd mentioned the software package you're using, CD Adapco. Um, I went to a conference, I think in 2013, and it was a CD Adapco industry conference. And they actually presented your optimization study as kind of, this is what our software can do. So it was, um, it was really cool because like I'm, I got to see this and I didn't know this was going on. It was pure coincidence, but they said, you know, this is this is what what it can do, and I was sitting there saying, "I own those wheels," so it was. Uh, <laughs> that's really yeah, cool. it was a huge surprise, but it was really wild to see that a a company that specializes in building this super high tech software is actually they they look to the the design process that you use. So I mean, that's the proof is in the pudding right there. If they're going to you or if they're using your data, that's fantastic. Like that's just showing that you're definitely on the right track. Yeah, and like I say, we. 
it, to me, it was like, I was racing to try and get this done because I'm like, somebody's going to do this. Like someone's going to beat me to this. This is so, like, to me, it felt obvious. And I'm not saying like it was obvious, but it just, it felt like, why wouldn't we be designing wheels like this? And I think today, like, I don't really know anybody that's doing the same thing. It's like, you still just take a number of random shapes, you throw them in a wind tunnel and this one's fast and there we go. And a lot of people don't discuss how they design products. So I, I don't want to say that people don't do this, but we, that's why we've always been very open and transparent because it's like, we want to show you that the the reason this stuff is fast is because we've proven it to be fast. We, we've, we've collected all that data, right? And so, and like we say, when we worked with CD Adapco, we're like, yeah, share it. We want people to know this. Like, and that's, I'm assuming why they shared it, but it's pretty cool to realize that of all the people they work with, they picked us and that makes me kind of, kind of happy. Nice. Tumbling. Well, so in your, it sounds like you've been around for about ten years, and in that time, John, what have you, uh, where have you seen the industry go? So you know, you've you've proven that your your model of of creating fast direct to consumer, uh, reasonably affordable wheels works. Uh, what else have you seen that's changed in the in the last ten years? And have you seen any kind of uh, convergence? Uh, change. We're we talking about like the way things are sold, or talking about product wheel products in in general, which. Yeah, that's a great, great request for clarification. I mean, in terms of the product itself, like in terms of the design and the engineering of the product, uh, what has what has changed in the in the ten years? So I think you know, first and foremost, we were kind of right at the beginning of the. Hey, uh, we're not going to create a V shape profile, right? So, and I'm not saying that toroidal shapes didn't exist because they did. I mean, there's an old patent. Uh, uh, Steve had, unfortunately he's passed. Um, but he worked with uh, some other guys and they developed this patent back in the day, which kind of introduced the concept of this toroidal shape. And, but really because that was patented and there was a number of other things, there were a lot of wheels that were just produced that, Hey, we're going to go deep and we're, everything's going to go, uh, the deeper we go, the faster we get. And when they do had that V profile, I mean, it was, if you got hit into the wind, any type of crosswind, it was like riding a bucking Bronco. Those things were just crazy <laughs> to control. Right. So yep. there was this, there was this belief, uh, and you know, Josh Portner, who was a, the head design engineer over at zip, who's actually a good buddy of mine now. Um, he owns a company called Silka now. so we've, we've done some work together, but oh, cool, yeah. he was working with a, a product called uh, the 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 line of the zip wheels cut which was called the firecrest wheel and the firecrest wheel was kind of like right on the on the cusp of saying yeah there's a toroidal shape but we're also looking at the you know the leading edge of the rim along with the tire right and so one of and it was ironically we, you know we we had seen that and we were kind of experimenting with the same things these different shapes and um we had we had also noticed the same thing about how if you did change the shape in the back that you not only could you create something that was very aerodynamic but you also changed the stability you went from like a bucking bronco to a a, a tour guide pony that has been you know they're not very they don't do much right so it's like okay this there's there's really something going on here so i think the first thing that you saw probably like you know anywhere between 2012 to 2015 was that shapes were starting to get sort of wider and away from that from that V-shape. What I think you're starting to see today is, and I think we've kind of led this a little bit with our our newest work to some extent, is I'm not saying that people haven't done things wider internally because there are wheels that are wider internally, but what we did, 
was we went out and did a number of on-road tests again for rolling resistance, but it basically proved that a wider internal is produces a, a lower rolling resistance. Because hmm. yes, we know tires are create lower rolling lower rolling resistance the wider you get, but could we do anything with a rim? And that's kind of what we've proved, and that's what's based on the new design. Um, but what we're also seeing is that depth is not necessarily faster, right? So we have a new wheel out that's 77 mils deep or 76.4. And we have an old wheel that's 94.7 mils deep. And the new 77 mil wheel is faster than the, the 94 millimeter wheel. And that's for a number of reasons. Number one, it's shape. But number two, we've gone, the width to depth ratio is much more important than we originally hmm. predicted. So interesting. I think what you're going to see over the next while is you're going to see things shallow up, but I think you're going to see things widen out. Um, I think the fact that we've you know published all that data and that that's common knowledge now that that's that is true that you can get something that's wider is faster and and to develop a an aerodynamic profile around larger stuff. Um, I think that that's that's going to converge. And the next the final thing I will say is that the whole industry as a whole is moving to just much wider tires. Like our first generation of wheels, we used a 23 millimeter tire. And at the time that was like a big fat boy tire. Like 23s were like, wow, that's, you're on the the big end. Yeah. Right. This generation, we didn't even look at 23 millimeter tires. We started at 25. So the new wheels are really optimized around anything between 25 to 32 with 28 millimeters being the fastest when you combine aerodynamics and rolling resistance. So wow. tires are, and the great thing about that is frames are widening out. And so it's allowing us more space inside and, and yeah, you're going to see a lot of more round, wide, stout shapes as opposed to, you know, skinny and deep. That was actually going to be a comment that I was going to make there was that uh, with disc brakes, the forks don't have to be so narrow anymore. Um, so that's opening up, uh, allows you to have bigger tires, allows you to have wider yep. rims. And we actually had a previous guest, um, uh, Victor major from Velocity wheels. And he had made the same comment that, uh, um, just having that wider aspect ratio or the, the higher aspect or I guess, lower aspect ratio, whatever number it is, wider wheels, <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's beneficial in a lot of circumstances. So what's interesting is we, we developed, uh, something we call the all sport line, which is basically you can use it for pretty much anything, right? I mean, the idea with this, this line of wheels was that we wanted to be, we don't want to give anything up from a rolling resistance or aerodynamics perspective, but at the same time, if you want to take it on the gravel roads, we want you to be able to do that. So it's great for racing triathlon, road racing. It's, it's a very, it's the most versatile wheel line that we've ever created. So that was line of wheels has a 21 millimeter internal rim width, which is super wide. Yep. Um, and the brake track's around 28, again, super wide. The deepest wheel that we make in that line is 77 millimeters deep. And we, we, you know, wind tunnel tested 32 mil tires and did all the rolling resistance stuff with that as well. We also created a gravel line and the gravel line, um, has a 25 millimeter internal rim width. So four millimeters wider, but its depth is about 54 millimeters and, we thought, hey, this is going to, it's, and we designed it around like super knobby gravel tires, like 37C, big, big tread. And we proved that aerodynamically it's, it's as significant as 
using a, an aero road rim as it is to use an aero gravel rim. Like it's, it matters way more than we thought. And oh. I think pretty much anybody thought. So even at the lower speeds what, of gravel, is that it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, hundred percent. So the, the thing that we realized too, is that, and we didn't know this, we just said, Hey, we have this. And what we're going to do is we're going to put a 32 mil tire on it in the wind tunnel. And we did. And the, and I didn't even notice this. It was kind of funny. Some guy was looking at our website and he goes, Hey, I noticed that uh, your gravel wheel is faster than your, any of your road wheels. And I was like, what? And so I went back and looked at the data. And if you put the 32 mil tire on the gravel wheel, which 25 internal, 33 on the, on the external, uh, it's faster than even the 77 mil wheel with a 32 mil tire. That's nuts. Right? So we've, again, we've shallowed it up, but we've got, gotten much wider and you create a much more natural profile. So, um, it's just, you see these, you see these trends and you see these things, uh, that, you know, wider tires and like that. It's just, it really, really matters. What's super interesting to me is that, and this is most likely coincidence, but maybe it's not. Um, Andrew mentioned, uh, Victor major of, uh, of Velocite and then his, his wheel brand is Ven. Um, but he did, uh, we had him on the show a few weeks back and he told us about, uh, a design process he used to build a wheel using uh, machine learning and he just gave it some parameters, but it turns out that it spat out essentially the same, I mean, the same, uh, depth and width that your, your deep wheels were, it was, uh, 77 millimeters deep and it basically wanted to be as wide as humanly as, as the, as the algorithm allowed it and his uh, his anecdote was the the original result was a 40 millimeter wide rim which of course wouldn't fit anything so they had right. to constrain it a little bit but it ended up being it, it went as wide as it, it could possibly go in his analysis too yep and what's interesting too is you you know i remember when we finished the the design of the second generation which was the first generation that used our optimization algorithm and we were leaving the wind tunnel and like we're super stoked about the results like much faster than anything we'd ever produced like i think our 60 millimeter wheel was like 23 percent faster which if you're gaining two percent in aerodynamics in this industry you're 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 stoked you're but understanding yeah. yeah i mean it was this huge gain because we had finally come up with this idea that if you have an average of your drag it really matters and I joked with my brother when we were leaving the wind tunnel. I looked at him. I said, "What do we do next? How do we make a wheel faster?" Like I don't know because we've already optimized it. So what do you do? And ironically, it was right around that time that we reached uh, Tom Anholt, who you guys I'm sure know. Everybody who's an engineer yep. in the space knows Tom. He's brilliant, great guy. Uh, I've known him for years. And he said, "Hey, you guys got some really cool wind tunnel data." And we had done this big giant tire study at A2. We did test it like 20 or 24 tires because we just wanted to see how everything performed. It's great data and. Uh, we shared all that out and Tom was like, Hey, if you guys have all this data, he goes, I've been starting this thing called, you know, blather about bikes and I've been doing all this rolling resistance testing. And I think it would be really cool to combine the aero Watts and the, and the, um, rolling resistance Watts and see what tires make the most sense. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's do it. We sent him the tires and I'm thinking like, Oh, rolling resistance. I, what's this? It doesn't really make much sense to me. And I, he sent the results back and I was like, just blown away. And I was like, the fact that it matters this much, we noticed mm -hmm. that just like a gator skin tire, a gator skin, which is a continental tire, which surprisingly is like really aerodynamic. Like it's impressively aerodynamic. Like it was like neck and neck with the continental GP 4000 S2, which at the time was like the fastest tire. Like it, it beats so many popular tires. <laughs> and so my th initial thought was like, Hey, well, why not just use gator skins? Because they're, they're not going to flap them. And then yep. you get the 
you get the rolling resistance numbers back and you see what it is over an Ironman, you lose eight minutes from rolling resistance alone on those tires compared to a Continental GP 4000. I'm like, okay, well that, that makes sense. Why? Right. So at that time we, we just realized like, okay, we've only been looking at half of the equation of what makes a wheel fast. We've been looking at, well, we just want to make stuff that's super arrow, but what about rolling resistance? Well, what is this? And that's really what sort of led us into the, to that next generation and that next line and realizing that, you know, wider tires are faster and things like that. Like I say, when we went into trying to understand what makes a faster rim and can we make a faster rim aerodynamically? Yeah. You, you do want to definitely widen things up, but you are restricted just like Victor said. So he's absolutely right. Yeah. That's uh, the gator skin is a funny analogy. And I've, I've heard comments before where people said it's actually faster to get a flat in an Ironman race and change it than it is to actually run a gator skin and avoid the flat altogether. <laughs> Even I could do it in that time. <laughs> yeah. Eight minutes. Yeah. Andrew, that's a long time to change a flat. You, you should be able to do it in under eight minutes. A hundred percent. Yeah. I know. It's funny that the year that we found that out, I, mean, I think it was 2000, 2000, no, it would have been 2016 because uh, Kona was that year and there was a athlete, very famous, very popular <laughs> athlete. Um, I think we know who you're talking about. Yeah, he he raced that year, and I think he lost by like seven, six or seven minutes. And he rode Gator Skins, and I the whole time I found out about that, I was like, the dude would have won if he would have changed his tires. And I was like, we have to figure this out. Like, we have to share this information. You know, it was it was a it's a big deal. It makes a it makes a huge difference to change your tires and to use the right tires and pressures and all that sort of stuff. And I think I was talking to you kind of shortly after this epiphany. Um, it was at one of the interbikes that we we had met up, and and I think we went out riding together. And you were just talking about the um, the importance of air pressure and tire width. And I know at that time you were starting to collect all this data, and now it's it's published. A lot, a lot of it's published on your website where you've got all yeah. these pressure data and recommendations for different tire widths. Um, so I guess, was this the point that, that you decided to just dig into that and figure out the, the whole fastest package as opposed to just the aerodynamically fastest package? Definitely. I mean, to me, it was the, the, the thing was, was I've never wanted to design a product that was we're going to make it wider because we think it's faster and everybody says wider is cooler and we're going to make it. I'm like, well, we got to, we got to prove it. And so the question was, well, how, right. And there was a, uh, again, back to Josh Portner, a brilliant guy. He did some work and, and he did, he teamed up with Tom and they kind of coined this phrase of something called impedance, which impedance is based on in theory and on a roller and in a lab, the higher your air pressure in your tire, the lower your rolling resistance get, and, and it gets, and it, you want a low number because that produces fewer watts to to basically roll a wheel forward. And everybody thought that that was true on the road, so everybody was going out, they're pumping their tires up to 120, and they're like, "Oh, this is great! We uh, we're going super fast. We got super high air pressures." And what Josh and uh, Tom had basically proven was that they noticed that it's faster until a certain point. And then all of a sudden, your rolling resistance on the road, when you as you increase your tire pressure, spikes, and it spikes drastically. And what they determined was that on a, in a lab, on a steel roller, it's like infinitely smooth. And so, but when you get to the road, even smooth pavement, new pavement, has quite a few surface imperfections and bumps. And so when your tire pressure gets too high and you're rolling over those bumps, 
the wheel starts to bounce over those bumps. And that energy that is supposed to be going forward starts going up and down. And what they did is they started doing testing. Josh did some testing out in um, uh, the cobbles, out in, in the tour. And they realized that the lower we bring the pressure, the faster these guys go. And as long as you're not botting, botting, botting out a rim, you're going to you're going to improve that. And so they did some studies on different pavement types, and they showed basically where these impedance breakpoints were. And what we said, and this was all based on the same rim and and, and you know tire width. And so at the time, I was like, okay, well, we want to prove this, but what we want to try and prove is that we want to prove that we can design a rim that lowers rolling resistance uh, because. We don't want to just say, hey, put a different tire on it. Because if we could prove that the rim was different, then we could airily optimize around that new rim shape. And so we took uh, probably better part of a year to try and find a computer and a system that would allow us to really study that and really understand that. And this was right at the time when a lot of this tech was, was coming out. So the idea was ahead of basically the technology that was developed. And we ended up settling on a group and we had one of their first prototype sensors uh, like I say, the group out of Calgary called Aerolab, uh, Chris and Kelly out there, they they uh, they sent us out this sensor and I actually flew up to Calgary and did some work with those guys. We rode on the road. We basically developed this protocol because their sensor was was allowing you to to measure not only CDA, but uh, on-road or CRR, which was kind of unheard of. Um, but most companies that were working with them, they're like, oh, we all study, let's study CDA, Arrow, let's study the Arrow. And we went to them, I went to them and said, look, I really want to study rolling resistance. And they're like, well, well, why do you want to do that? And we can do it, but that doesn't, you know, we don't really know. And I'm like, look, we've kind of solved this arrow game, but we just want to figure out this rolling resistance thing. So we developed this protocol. Uh, we teamed up with uh, UNLV, which is a local university here um, in Las Vegas. And we took probably the next year to whatever to finally develop this protocol. And we studied multiple different tires, multiple different pressures, uh, multiple different internal rim widths. And we just went out and we rode and rode all these different um, routes and to study what actually happens. And in that process, we proved that a wider internal rim width uh, lowers your rolling resistance. And so then what we did is we basically optimized around that wider internal shape, which the resulting package like reduces we don't talk about things in drag anymore because we have to look at it in watts but it it saves about two watts per wheel um when you are when you're optimizing for both which is huge i mean that's a that's a that's a big step but we also learned some other interesting things which we had not seen um kind of a first of a kind things that we had we learned when we were studying this and impedance is this thing you know it was kind of understood that it was sort of this set point so you know, depending on your weight and depending on the pavement type you would hit this point and let's say it was, you know, 85 PSI, then it would spike. What we learned was that your impedance breakpoint shifts as you increase or decrease your speed. So the faster you go, the sooner your breakpoint happens. The slower you go, the longer you have until your breakpoint hits. And so- That makes sense. Yeah. And it makes sense when you think about it. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, but until we actually saw it and proved it, it's like, oh- um, now it makes sense. So your speed is also a component in understanding um, where that impedance breakpoint is, which really at this point 
we really want to be using a lot lower tire pressure than we believe we do, but it's really difficult to convince people of that. And it's, it's really based on sort of this hysteresis effect that happens and it's, it's really due to vibration. So most people go out and you put them on 120 PSI and they go down the road. And because of that up and down movement, they get all of this vibration that goes through their body. Mm-hmm. And the human body, when it senses vibration like that, thinks that it's going really, really fast. It's like if you have a, a super old car that's like got really bad suspension <laughs> and you go 100 miles an hour, you think you're going to die and you think you're going 200 miles an hour. <laughs> if you get in a really nice new car with great suspension and you're going 100 miles an hour, you feel like you're going 60, right? So the body is is receiving that input much differently. And what it's saying to yourself is, I'm either going faster or slower. So when you lower your tire pressure, you're not getting those up and down bumps and you're actually going faster by pre- with the same amount of watts, but people don't believe it because it's that, it's that mental feedback that you get that tells you that you are going slower. And so it's really difficult to, to change that. But all of the work that we've done now and the stuff that we're showing is, is really kind of the proof. And that's why we needed the proof in order to say, you know, we're going to make this product and we finally got it and we've made a, a really cool product that's super fast. So, John, I thought I knew, uh, you know, everything there was, well, maybe not everything there was to know, but I, I thought I, I was uh, a pretty on pretty firm ground as far as uh, uh, rolling resistance, but I'm certainly learning a lot. So the obvious question to me as I'm hearing you talk about this stuff, and uh, um, it certainly makes sense, but the obvious question to me is, as a user or, you know, as a coach, what am I telling, you know, when I'm advising folks on, uh, on uh, tire pressure for race day, what's your process for, for figuring this out? Like you've, you've named some of the variables and I'll just uh, rehash them for our, the benefit of our listeners. And that's uh, rider weight, obviously, you know, tire size, uh, rim, rim width, apparently, which I didn't yep. know was such a big factor, uh, road conditions and speed. So that's a pretty, you know, it's kind of a multifactorial problem to solve. How do you go about, uh, you know, advising people on what tire pressure sh- they should be running given those things? Number one, I would say, go ahead and, and take a look at our, at our charts, uh, on our website. If you go to any one of our wheel pages, we have these graphs that are out there, um, that kind of give you a, a rough starting point. Um, that's, your extreme max pressure. And so okay. what we would say is is start there. And if you go out and you do a couple tests before, um, you can kind of get a sense of maybe you start at, let's say, 80 PSI, and then you go out and you do another quick test at 75. And for the same amount of power output, you're gonna you're gonna produce a different speed. So you want to start sort of at that upper range. And then if you do a little bit of experimentation with yourself, you'll start to realize kind of where that sweet spot is. So, and if anything, you want to factor a little bit on the low side. And the reason you want to factor a little bit on the low side is because that CRR um, versus pressure graph, it decreases pretty gradually. It's not super steep, but once you hit that break point, it goes up really quickly. So, like two PSI or five PSI over is much more of a penalty than if you're five PSI under. So that's why we say we, we kind of give these top ranges. And then we say, if anything, you know, experiment a little bit. If you think that you're on smooth pavement, maybe factor in that it's a little rougher than you think it is. And so, you know, our, our recommendations are, are, those, are those extreme tops. If you don't have a way to test, um, you can kind of go with what our numbers are and maybe give yourself a factor of, you know, five to 10% and, and just play it safe by dropping just a little bit. That's kind of our recommendation. 
at this point. I love it. Okay, and we'll of course link to those uh, those plots on your page because I, I think, yeah. uh, like I said, I've been sharing them in the past, but this is a, an excellent reference. So I'm actually just flipping through those as you're talking and looking at um, at my own weight plus the bike, which I don't want to reveal right now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's quarantine weight, right, Andrew? Uh, yeah, that's right. Let's go with that. Yeah, but uh, looking at the recommendation, even with the narrowest tire on smooth pavement, it's still below 90 psi. And yeah, I don't know of anyone that I've ever talked to who's filled up a race tire to less than 90 psi. And that's for right. like, I'm on the heavier end of riders. Um, well, mid to heavy, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible how much lower it is. And then the, this is one of those rare instances where you get like more comfort as well. So it's a win-win it's, there's oh, almost totally. nothing to lose. Um, so I, I just can't see a downside for this aside from people just getting over the mentality of having to have high pressures to go fast. Yep. There's another, uh, great resource for, for tires and stuff like that. Uh, Silka has a, a pressure calculator as well. Um, and you can plug a bunch of stuff into their calculator if they want to take a look at it. Their numbers are lower than ours are. And I'm not saying that we're right or I'm not saying that they're wrong. Uh, I'm just saying that we tested in different ways and we sort of have a different, um, we have a different outcome. I, I mean, I saw what I saw in the numbers. I believe in the numbers. And I, I know that Josh is a great engineer, super thorough. And I know that he trusts in his numbers 100%, right? So I think, you know, a lot of this stuff too is people can get super fanatical about, well, if my PSI is supposed to be 87 and, you know, if my is my pump 100% accurate? And it's like, look, right. there's a number of factors of, you know, temperature and what happens when you ride a wheel and does your, does the pressure go up or does it go down a little bit because you're starting to lose through the tube or you're there, everything matters. And what we really want to do. And I think the biggest thing is, is if we're moving you from 120 PSI down to an 85 PSI, we're really helping you out, right? If you can at least buy off that, you know, that we're going to trust this and we're going to lower, like I said, impedance matters when you're over a lot. So if you're over by like almost 40 PSI, you're really messing things up, right? So you want to get close. You want to factor yourself a little bit under and you want to take as much benefit as you can because in the long run, it's going to, it's there, every watt matters. And and I really think that taking the, the rough guidelines from this is, is really going to be significant for people. There's another side benefit too, that um, I think a lot of people don't often think about unless they experience it. But uh, if you've been at the start of an Ironman race, people pump up their their tires and it's 6 a.m. It's usually cold, it's dark, um, but then the sun comes up and there's this fun thing called the ideal gas law, which basically says as the uh, temperature of a, a gas goes up, so does the pressure. PV um, equals NRT. Yeah, exactly. This is like a mini physics lesson here. Um, yes, it is. But uh, no, like so many tires, just you're you're standing by the swim entrance and you hear it's like gunshots going off. And fortunately, that's never been my tire, probably because I've always aired on the side of lower pressure. But uh, those people who put them up to 120 psi before getting in the water, before the sun comes up, by the time the temperature goes up, you know, 10 degrees Celsius over the the initial part of the day, their pressure might go up quite a bit as well. Um, I don't have a number offhand for what that calculation would be, but it, it could be maybe around 10 PSI or something. So I wrote a blog article. Uh, wow. That was 2014. I'm just pulling it up here. Um, it talks about tire pressure and elevation and the differences that you will see in pressure uh, as you go up in elevation. 
So it said, if the tube was inflated to a gauge pressure of 90 PSI at 10,000 feet and we moved down to sea level, the gauge pressure would now be 85.4 PSI. So most races that we experience don't swing 10,000 feet, right? <laughs> so you're, you're really, the pressure change is, is pretty insignificant from a, from a height perspective. And then if you look at tire pressure and temperature, let's say we used 100 PSI, and this is back before we really understood everything about pressure, at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, by the time you get to 130, which is pretty much as hot as it gets on this planet, you're up to 111. If you move up to 100 PSI, you're at about 105. So you're adding about 5 PSI for uh, 30 degrees of, 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 uh, of temperature. So if you're waking up on a cold morning, it's, you know, 40 degrees out, you pump up to, you know, let's say, let's say you're looking at 95. By the time you get to an 80 degree day, you're, you're adding roughly seven or eight PSI. So it's something that that's important. You definitely want to consider that. Um, temperature does have an effect on pressure more so than elevation. Hmm. Well, that's good to know. I hadn't even thought the elevation standpoint, that's interesting as well. I'm learning so much here. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it all matters. Yeah, this is uh, very, very cool information. So you've you've done all this work to optimize what tires and wheels and essentially the, the whole rolling gear of the, the bike are. Um, so what's the next step? Like what what is left? What's the untouched ground? Um, we have a patent filed. Um, I just got word. Basically, it looks like it's going to be approved. Um, I guess you can find the patent application online at this point. Um we are, and I, I won't give all the details at this point, but basically we are looking at intelligence and what can we do to make something intelligent from a wheel perspective. Hmm. And uh, that will be the next phase of what we do. And I think that um, a lot of the things that we know today are, like I just said, you know, we're, we're telling you to pump your tires up and factor in this and factor in that. And, you know, you're going to be close, but the the question ultimately becomes what can we do from an intelligence perspective, not only to be a hundred percent accurate, but what can we do from an intelligence perspective to also solve problems and to allow you to optimize yourself from an intelligence perspective. And to me, um, that's kind of been a, a big vision, a big goal for a long time. And I think that uh, uh, we have some prototypes for sure, and we are we are definitely on track for that. And I think that that to me will be the the next generation. And I I believe um, right now that hopefully we'll be the first ones to do that. So it's it's pretty cool. Um, I'm really excited about what that means. Um, I'm excited about what potential we have for the future. I think eventually most products that we have will become intelligent to some perspective and just what we're going to do and how we're going to do that. I, I will kind of leave that out for now, but um, intelligence, I think intelligence is going to matter. So this is amazing that you started off looking at wheels, thinking they're way too expensive and that you could make them better and cheaper. 
and coming <laughs> all this way to diving really deep dive into rolling resistance and tire pressures that hadn't really been explored in detail and then coming over to the the intelligence side like it's it's super cool to see that trajectory and uh you know being a canadian as well i'm proud to see canadians out there uh, innovating <laughs> so, yeah even though you live in the us now i won't hold that against you too much i know right yeah yeah you won't <laughs> No, I, I appreciate that. And you were you were talking you were talking to us in feet, and miles, and, and Fahrenheit. I I let that slide also. Yeah, I know, right? You gotta you gotta swing to your audience. We're about 80 percent <laughs> U.S. Uh, of uh, customer sure. base, so. But I could convert to Celsius if you want. <laughs> oh, we, we we can do it too. Well, uh, we we actually have um, we actually have more listeners in the states than we do in Canada, which makes sense because yeah. the market. Maybe we can make a big bigger. push Definitely. to convert the U.S. to the metric system. I think that's that's yeah. a failed experiment, Andrew. <laughs> it was tried before, wasn't it? In the seventies or yeah, something? Yeah, it, it was. was you, guys, I, you guys gave it a go. Yeah, they gave it a go, and there's I think there's like three holdouts. It's like the United States, and I forget the other two, but they're like kind of obscure. And well, know. the UK still does miles for distance, but they do everything else in yep. metric. And and Canada is weird too because there's still, even though we're officially all metric, there's still in terms of uh, popular usage, there's you still see like you know pounds in the grocery store yep. and uh, and all sorts of pool temperatures know, like that. always Fahrenheit. Oh yeah, yeah. For that, that, that I never understood. Yeah, it's such a hybrid. Yeah. Our thermometers are made in the states. I think that's yep. why. That's right. <laughs> Well, I think that's maybe a little bit off topic, but uh, no, this is this has been an awesome conversation. Every time I talk to you, John, I learn something new, and it's oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's super cool to see the the path that you guys have taken, and um, I'm well, I'm very happy to say I was an early supporter, but just seeing how much you've grown and how much your technology has really pushed the rest of the industry along is very cool as well. Well, thank you. That's a that's a big compliment. Thank you. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, Andrew and I talk about this all the time, but one of the the most fun things about doing this uh, doing this podcast is sometimes we'll have guests on things that we don't know much about. And then, you know, it's always, we're always taking notes and learning. But then other times we've got folks who, who talk things out we do or we think we know a lot and uh it's it's when i learn something in an area that i thought that i i knew quite a bit on that's that's the most satisfying for me so yeah thanks man hey no problem i'm happy to uh happy to be a part of it we love it so is there anything that you want to uh you want us to plug um to share on the in the show notes anything other than obviously your website your your social feeds uh anything new and exciting coming up that you want us to share Hey, I mean, anyone wants to come take a look at wheels and we always like people to buy wheels. That's great. But I think another thing that I think is important um, for us, I remember when I started this company, there was, we always wanted to have somewhat of a a give back component. I'm I'm a big supporter of that. I'm also a huge supporter of um, having a a responsible company from a, just from a, an environmental perspective. And so we have a program that's called bike for a kid. Um, 1% of all of our annual sales go back to buying bikes and helmets for kids um, for children in need. And we've done, uh, uh, had a partnership with the Ironman foundation, which is the charitable side of Ironman, a great group of people over there this year. That's been somewhat impacted because of COVID-19. And, you know, they, what we do is we go into these Ironman villages and we, we donate, um, the bikes and then we have athletes come by and build them. And right now with COVID, we can't really do that. Right. I mean, the last thing we want to do is be building a bike for a kid and spread COVID. So that's, that's sure. definitely not cool. Um, there's some cool things we're doing though. Uh, Iron Aid is a, is a cool thing and we're kind of a part of that in some ways. And so we're, we're excited about that. So I just think it's important to know that um, if you want to, if you can plug that or just 
the concept of, of giving back. So I always think that that matters. Um, and then the other thing is, I think that it's important to note is just that we looked at everything that we do from an environmental perspective. And I really hate the idea of producing something that's taking more than we're giving. And so in 2000, I would say probably 17, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in that range, I had a, a pretty real conversation with our factories. Um, and it was, we kind of had to push a little bit just because it's not the standard, but all of our boxes are now made from hundred percent recycled materials. Uh, we use no plastics in any of our packaging. Uh, I designed a box that was specifically used uh, to protect hubs and do things, but it removed all the plastics. And then we also plant a tree for um, every wheel that we ship. And so the reason behind that is that not only does it offset the paper that we would use for the box for the cardboard, but it actually produces a, a negative carbon footprint for the production of a wheel. So over the lifespan of that tree, um, we're actually taking more carbon out of the atmosphere than we are to uh, putting in uh, by producing that wheel. So that's something that's that's important to us. And that's something we call our one tree, one wheel program. So if you do buy something from us, um, it supports not only Bike for a Kid, but it also supports, supports the one wheel, one tree initiative. So I just think that stuff's kind of cool. I, I love hearing about both of those. And yeah, it's something I feel strongly about as well, but uh, it's really good to see you setting a, a good example for that. And to be honest, the last wheel I bought from you, um, I've kept the box because it was so well-designed that I said, this is going to be fantastic for for hauling around another wheel sometime. So, um, so reusing before even recycling. So I've, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So good job on that. And it's yeah. Setting the standard for everyone else. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. And I think as, uh, as you know, industry folks, this is as much as consumers can vote with dollars. I think people who are, especially in the manufacturing or any kind of logistics, uh, business, I think the, the impact that they, guys like you make john is felt that much more so yeah i uh, second the appreciation there thank you appreciate it cool well i i think that'll wrap for us um uh, folks as usual thank you so much for uh, for tuning in and for listening to us and uh, a big thanks to john and uh, if you enjoy the show do rate and review us on your preferred podcast listening app and uh, consider supporting the show by following the links in the show notes hey thanks guys <laughs>